rejoice and so we are beyond blessed and honored and just thank you absolutely in awe that you continue to come and minister to us and speak into our lives and I shared with you last night you know as Peter was sharing with our leadership team last night I just kind of sat there gobsmacked you know <laughs> there's so much wisdom and revelation and, and everything that flows out of Peter's mouth is so natural <laughs> but it's also kind of so supernatural and heavenly at the same time that your spirit just testifies with that so we're really thankful for your journey and all the years that you've been walking with the Lord because we are um, we benefit and are blessed by that so thank you welcome we just welcome you to minister and share and share your heart and thank you for being with us Sarah. appreciate that it's great good on you <laughs> Good on you. Very good. Thank you for those kind words. I do appreciate them. I'm going to stand up uh, so you can see me down the back there. Um, not because I need to be in power and control mode. Uh, <laughs> so, um, always delightful uh, to be here, uh, just getting myself organised. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time together today and um, I'm going to try and make sure that I don't uh, overwhelm you with too much uh, to consume. So uh, the timelines have moved around, so I'm just going to take control of the timelines. Uh, and uh, so we're going to go to quarter past 12 and we're going to have some lunch and, uh, and I'll have a break in between and all that sort of stuff. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, great. All right, let's me, let me begin with a little bit of humour because uh, if nothing else that'll be good for our souls. Uh, there was a group of adults who were taking a computer science course at a community college and after a few weeks of classes the professor decided to have some fun one day as a little learning activity and he divided them by sex and he put the men on one side of the room and women on the other side of the room. He said, I want you all to do a project for the next 10 minutes. I want you to determine what gender computers ought to be. And so they deliberated. So finally, here come the men. They voted, they voted unanimously that computers should be referred to in the feminine gender. And so the professor said, all right, share with me your points. They had four points. They said that the reason why computers should be spoken of in the feminine gender is because no one but their creator understands their internal logic. <laughs> the second reason is because when computers communicate with each, other, with each other, they speak in code language that only they and experts can understand. <laughs> the third reason is because every mistake you make is stored on their hard drive for later retrieval. <laughs> Hang in there, ladies, you'll get your turn. <laughs> the, the fourth reason these men said was because as soon as you commit to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessorising it. <laughs> uh, don't, don't laugh too hard because women, the women had the last word on this subject. The women voted unanimously, computers must be in the masculine gender. Why? As they gave their report, they said, first of all, in order to get their attention, you have to turn them on. <laughs> Secondly, they have a lot of data, but still can't think for themselves. <laughs> Thirdly, they're supposed to help you solve the problem, but half the time they are the problem. <laughs> and the final reason they gave was because as soon as you commit to one, you realise that if you'd waited a little longer, you could have gotten a better model. <laughs> oh, 
I want to spend uh, our time together today talking about how do we bear witness to the kingdom. Uh, E. Stanley Jones made this comment many years ago. He said, my fear for the church of the future is not that they shall uh, reject the kingdom of God, but they shall in fact reduce it. And I think one of the issues that we face in our current climate is how do we actually see that our role is to bear witness to the kingdom of God, not just be church attenders? What does it look like for us to bear witness to the kingdom of God in everything that we do and everywhere that we are? So Jesus uh, was really fascinated with the kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom of God all the time. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He didn't come preaching the gospel of salvation. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the kingdom was a very different thing that he wanted to talk about. After he died and uh, rose again, there were 40 days between when he rose again and when he ascended to heaven. And uh, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, I'll actually... Uh, my Bible's buried under here somewhere. Um, we, uh, we find that Jesus spent those 40 days... Uh, talking with the disciples. And so I want you to think about 40 days, so it's six weeks. So here we are in the third week or coming into the fourth week of November. So if you go back to the second week of October and you think about everything that's happened in your life since the second week of October until now, then that's 40 days. And so in that time period, Acts chapter 1 verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive, that's his disciples, Um, after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so he spent 40 days speaking about the kingdom. And it was the 40 days before he left to be in heaven and he wanted to leave the disciples with a mandate that they were to advance the kingdom of God. He didn't spend 40 days talking about the church, he spent 40 days talking about the kingdom. Jesus referred to the church three times. He referred to the kingdom about 180 times in all that he taught. And so the church is not meant to be an end in itself. It's meant to be a means to the coming of the kingdom. And we as God's people, we as the ecclesia, we as the ones who are ambassadors of Christ, need to understand that our primary role is to be ambassadors of the kingdom, not ambassadors of the church. We're meant to understand what the kingdom's all about, but many of us have not actually taken the time to even figure out, well, how would we define the kingdom? So we all pray uh, in the way that Jesus taught us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. So if the kingdom was to come, what would you see? If If the kingdom of God was to manifest itself in your life, if the kingdom of God was to manifest itself in the church that you're a part of, if the kingdom of God was to manifest itself in the community in which you live, what would you see? We pray for the kingdom to come, but do we actually know what we're asking? What would it look like? We, uh, we're told later on in the same uh, gospel in Matthew uh, chapter 6 that we are to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto us. When you're seeking the kingdom, what are you actually seeking? What, what is it that you're looking for? And so we, we have these words that sort of roll out of our mouths, but have we ever really stopped to think about the importance and the place of the kingdom and how I bear witness to the kingdom, how you bear witness to the kingdom, how our congregations bear witness to the kingdom? So the first thing that I want you to consider with me this morning is what's the definition of the kingdom? 
So uh, kingdom, we find the, the meaning in the word itself in one level. It's the domain of the king. The kingdom, it's a domain, and it's the domain of the king. So it's the domain of Jesus. And so if we go back in history, we're not as familiar with kingdoms as the, uh, the people who heard Jesus preaching for the first time. We live in democracies, and so we're not quite used to kingdoms. We have to go back into history to actually figure out what a kingdom looks like and what the king's domain was. But essentially, a kingdom where the king was, they were the sovereign and they had all the power and they could decide to do whatever they want. They didn't have to refer to anybody. Last night when I was talking uh, with the leaders from here, I drew uh, attention to the thought that I've recently watched a number of episodes of a TV series called Victoria, and it's about Queen Victoria. And in that, uh, she had a lot of kids, uh, six up to what I, where I'm up to in the series. And uh, some of the older children, when they come into her presence, they actually bow and curtsy to her because she's the sovereign. And then they run up and jump into her lap because they, she's their mother. But first of all, she is their sovereign. First of all, she is the one who sets all the parameters of how they are to live. And then they jump into her lap as children. We've been saved... And we've been saved into the family of God. We are children of God, but he's also Lord, his saviour and his Lord. Um, and so I, I just I think a little bit uh, about the church of the Western world, including the congregation I lead, um, particularly for those people who are under 30, known as the millennial generation, whom I love and I celebrate and I think are outstanding and awesome. Um, but they seem to have lost sight of the fact that Jesus is actually Lord. Uh, and his word prevails um, and that we yield to him as Lord even though we don't necessarily like some of the things that we're asked to yield to. And so, so whilst we find in the word kingdom uh, a definition, it's the domain of the king, what does that actually look like in reality? And so what I want to suggest to you in maybe a simplistic way but a way that we can all climb into pretty easily is that for me the definition of the kingdom is where the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority exists. And so it's where the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority exists. And so if you were to see the kingdom in my life, what you should see is across every area of my life, the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority. If you were to see it in a church, you would see the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority. If you were to see it in a community, you would see, or you see it in a business, you'd see it would be the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority. Now, that's an ideal. We're all on a journey. We're all broken, and we're all figuring out how to yield to the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority. But as, as followers of Jesus, as residents of the kingdom of God, if we're going to bear witness to the kingdom, one of our highest priorities is to be living a life that actually honours the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority in everything that we do and everything that we are. And so if that's the definition of the kingdom, I want to suggest to you today, what, what does the activity of the kingdom look like? And so if you were part of a Viking kingdom, you would sail your boats across to England. I'm not quite sure why they wanted England, but anyway, they thought it was a great place to conquer. And the, the rule and reign of the kings of the Vikings was to conquer England and take it for their own. Every kingdom has its own mandate has its own activity and so so what's the activity or the mandate of the kingdom of God 
again, in a, maybe a simplistic way, I would want to suggest to you this morning that the activity of the kingdom of God is to restore everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be. And so the supreme rule and reign of Jesus has been lost when Adam and Eve surrendered their lives to another father called Satan and took all of humanity with them into that space. And we'll talk about that later on today. But in doing that, it means that the, the things that God originally intended are no longer the case. And so salvation is a, point in, is a case in point, that people are away from God. God's original intent was that every human being would live in his family, would be a child of God. Um, God's original intent was that there would be no sickness on the earth, that, that we would live free of sickness. But because Adam and Eve took us as a human race into another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, we now have a whole lot of things that need to be restored back to the way that God originally intended to be. And so people coming to faith is the restoration of the way God originally intended for everybody to be in God's family. Healing is the restoration of sickness and restoring that back to the way that God originally intended to be, that there would be no sickness, there would be no ill health. And so... If we're going to bear witness to the kingdom, it's going to have something to do with restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be. And it's going to have something to do with our own journey of allowing the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority to exist in every area of our lives and in the way that we treat one another, the way we treat ourselves, the way that we treat the people that are around us. Um, and so... My, my primary sort of thrust today is to consider this question. To bear witness to the kingdom, what would need to be restored back to the way God originally intended it to be so that our communities may be sceptical of what we believe but they are envious of how we loved one another. So if, if we were to bear witness to the kingdom in such a way that we, were we were actually were committed to restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be, that as we did that, our communities around us would still be sceptical of what we believe. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that I believe that I used to be sceptical of before I came to faith. And I, I still, quite honestly, there are mysteries. I'm not sceptical anymore, I just live with mystery. But how can there be three, three people in one? I mean, that's a really odd idea. How can God always have been there? That's another really odd idea, you know. Uh, and so I used to be sceptical of those things before I came to faith. I just consider them mysteries now that I may never understand. Um, I don't know why we make understanding everything higher than living with mystery. Or why we don't celebrate mystery as being higher than understanding. Uh, science has convinced us that the pinnacle of, of life is to understand. Yeah. Well, why not the pinnacle of life just going, there's mystery? Uh, that, that seems to be a lot more interesting to me. Uh, uh, to, uh, trying to understand some of the mystery is great, but, uh, but why not make mystery the pinnacle rather than understanding? And so that's where I think science is um, not being helpful. It's been helpful in a whole bunch of other ways. And so, so what would it be like if people were still sceptical of what we believe, but what they were envious of was the way that we love one another? Because Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. In John 17, he prayed the great prayer that we would be one just as they are one, so the world will know that the Father sent the Son. And so as we're on this journey of bearing witness to the kingdom of God, and as we're interested in what, what does that mean to, about restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be, 
What would it be like if we actually went on that journey in our communities of faith, looking out more than looking in? I mean, we've got to restore everything back to the way originally, God originally intended to be inside of our communities of faith. But it's more what does that witness mean to people outside? And it, and it seems that love is, is a key issue uh, for us to consider. So they've got three distinct messages um, that I want to explore with you today. The first is um, things that need to be restored back to the way that God originally intended them to be so that we would bear witness to the kingdom. The first is the authority of love. The second is the power of oneness. And the third is the basis of servanthood. Um, and so the whole intent of my time with you today is to get you to think about what would it take for you to restore love back to the way that God originally intended it to be? What would it take for you to restore oneness back to the way that God originally intended it to be? And what would it take for you to restore servanthood back to the way that God originally intended it to be? And that in restoring those things back to the way God originally intended it to be, we begin to bear witness to the kingdom, which seemingly is the most important thing to Jesus because he spent 40 days talking to the boys about it before he went back to be with the Father. So, with all of that in mind, uh, we're going to jump into bearing witness to the kingdom of God by restoring love back to the way that God originally <laughs> intended it to be. Some of you will have heard me talk about these ideas before. I'm always, you know, when I have the privilege of coming back uh, to different places, um, I'm aware that some of the things that I say you've heard before, uh, but there are new people in the room as well. And the thing that I have discovered as a pastor is that um, I actually need to say the same thing probably at least seven times, if not a dozen times, before people actually get it yeah. in here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you'll all understand it in here straight up, but it's, it's actually understanding it in here. And so my prayer as I've come into this weekend is, Holy Spirit, let there be a spirit of wisdom and revelation that touches people's hearts, that even though you might have heard what I've said before, that you would keep your heart open to letting it land in your heart um, because there's, there's always more to understand about everything in the kingdom. And when it comes to love, uh, the, the, the breadth and width and depth of it is just extraordinary. So um, with that in mind, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, again, I read it as something that uh, I would imagine most of us in the room are very familiar with, uh, but Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo I'm with you always even to the end of the age so as we make disciples there are three things that we need to do one is that we need to baptize people the other is that we need to teach and the other is that we need to remember that Christ dwells within us now, that he's come and made his home in us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said that the Father and Jesus would come and make their home in us, that Christ is within us, the mystery that Christ dwells within us. And so he's with us always, even to the end of the age. It's not just that he's just around us somewhere, but he's actually in us uh, and that he's living with us and we're living with him. And he wanted us, I'm sure that uh, when he was talking to the disciples about the kingdom, 
He was wanting to really let them know that the Spirit was going to be dwelling in them, they were going to be in them, and that they were going to be bearers of the kingdom of God. And it wasn't up to them to heal the sick, it was God in them that was going to be released to heal the sick or win people to faith. And so I think that they had a great reliance on this truth that Paul talks about 169 times, saying Christ within, you in Christ, God with you, all those sorts of ideas. So we're making disciples. The first thought is that in bearing witness to the kingdom of God is that do you see yourself as a disciple maker? Um, Do you see that you have a role in making disciples? If nothing else, are you living a life that's worthy of being imitated? Because it it seems to me that Paul says, says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, disciple making is not a leadership responsibility disciple making is every follower of Jesus responsibility Um, and so so we're all meant to be making disciples and that assumes that we are being made into a disciple it assumes that we're allowing somebody else the privilege of speaking into our lives and somebody else the privilege of helping us to figure out how to be followers of Jesus We've become a very independent culture. Um, In days gone by, people believed that it took a village to raise a child. Uh, Now we think it's just one or two parents that are meant to raise children. Um, We've diminished everything down to the nuclear family or down to individualism, whereas historically people thought about living in community and they needed one another to survive in community. Uh, and so we have become a lot more protective of our lives um, than maybe they would have been in the past. And so it's learning how to have an attitude of being open to the fact that others will see things about me that I don't see and that I need to be humble enough to let them make those observations. Equally, we need, need to create a culture where those observations are made in a way that is not punishing and is not critical but is life-giving and empowering. And so I'm using my emotional intelligence to figure out how to communicate to somebody something that I see in a way that they'll be able to hear it because it's not what I say that's important, it's what they hear that's important. And so I've got to learn how to frame my words. So I've got, you know, well, I used to have a bunch of staff. They're still my friends. Uh, I handed over the staff to uh, another leader earlier in the year. I'm still a senior leader at Stairway. I'm just not responsible for the staff. But anyway, uh, in talking with, uh, with the seven main leaders in the life of our church, uh, I had to figure out I can say things to Morris in a way that I can't say them to Chris. Because Morris is an entirely different kettle of fish into how he's wired to the way that Chris is wired. Chris is a slow processor, which I value and appreciate. My wife, Lynn, processes slowly as well. Whereas Morris is a quick processor and goes to the bottom line. Now, he goes to the bottom line sometimes too quickly. But if I try and tell Morris a story, I'll lose him. i just got to tell him the bottom line and then help him not to enact it too quickly. Um, Whereas Chris, I need to give him more of the story. I need to give him more of the background as to what what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking it. And he doesn't actually want to hear the bottom line straight up. He wants to go away and think about it and then come back to me and say, so you think this is the bottom line? Um, and, And so I've actually got to use my emotional intelligence to figure out even though uh, I need to be humble and let people speak into my world, I also need to be humble enough to be able to speak into their world in a way that they can hear it. Um, and so this is where the value of knowing and being known comes from, 
for us. It's one of the core values of Stairway, is that we, we live a life of knowing and being known, not telling for the purpose of agreement. Um, and so I've got to try and understand the people that are around me. If I'm going to disciple them, I need to figure out how I communicate in a way that they can hear and, and not get either lost in my storytelling um, or that they don't feel like I'm being too abrasive and too in their face. Uh, and then it's up to me to help other people around me know who I am as well. So when you want to talk to me, the best, one of the best ways for me to receive information is just tell me as it is. Don't, don't start trying to second guess how I'm going to respond and hedge because I'll be, I'll be t- 10 steps ahead of you trying to figure out what you're really trying to say. <laughs> Just say it. Just say it. Watch the tone of your voice. Watch your body language. Um, come with a sense of kindness. But I'm happy to hear it just as it is because that's how I'm wired. Now, other people, you do have to go on a bit of a journey. And so Duffy is another member of our staff. Um, Duffy's a storyteller. Uh, Duffy's an external processor. And so if I go to the bottom line with him too quickly, he gets pained because he wants to understand how I got there. He wants to understand the process that I've gone through to get there. So I need to tell him the story. And as I tell him the story, I'm taking him on the journey. As I said before, if I did that with Morris, Morris would be sitting there. Morris is like me. He'd be six steps ahead of me and trying to figure out, so what are you really trying to say to me? Um, and getting more agitated uh, <laughs> that I'm not actually saying it as it is. And so... Um, so anyway, uh, there's this, this great privilege of making disciples uh, and that there are three primary things that we're doing. Um, my point here right at the front end is that as I talk about making disciples, uh, it's your role to make disciples and it's your role to be made into a disciple. We've abdicated this to the church and to the organisation. But if we're going to bear witness to the kingdom, the kingdom is actually a place of community. We've been adopted into a family that is a community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've been adopted into a family that do life together in community. They discuss everything together. Let us make man in our image. They talked about what it would look like to make the world. And so, so we're meant to do life in community, and we're meant to be prepared to surrender our lives in trust and humility to a group of people around us that have proven that they are actually thinking of our best interests. They're not out to get me, they're not out to hurt me, etc., etc. Having said that, some of the people that I have yielded my life to have hurt me and have betrayed me and have walked out of my life. Um, I just want to say that that's life. Yeah. Um, I can't stop trusting people and I can't stop living in community just because I got hurt. You know, some people say to me, well, we're leaving the church because we got hurt. I said, well, I would have left a long time ago if that was my reason for staying in the church. You know, let me show you all the knives in my back. Um, <laughs> if that's the reason for staying in church, then I was gone a long time ago. Um, that, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is how I grow through those times to be a person of forgiveness and generosity and gentleness and humility. Um, so we're making disciples. When we're making disciples, there are three things. We're baptising people. That's the easy bit. Um, we're then teaching people and then we've got to believe that God is with us always. So stepping into this space of teaching people, um, it seems to me that Jesus was saying that we, we're to teach about a whole lot of things, but what we teach is meant to come back to one core issue. So if you think of a bicycle wheel and the hub, so we teach on forgiveness. I'm going to suggest it's a spoke. We teach on giving. It's a spoke. We teach on worship. It's a spoke. But they all come back to one core hub. Teach them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. 
Um, the core issue is we're teaching people to stick with what Jesus has commanded us. So a number of thoughts in here. The first is that Jesus said we're to teach what he has commanded us. We're now back around lordship. We're now back around the fact that we're meant to teach people that God actually does have commands. And the commands are not conversations. It's not a discussion. I'm not actually interested in your point of view. You can tell me your point of view, but it's not going to change what I think. A command is, I've decided what's best, and I now expect you're going to do it. Um, so so when, <coughs> excuse me, when we're teaching, we're teaching a couple of things in here. We're, we're teaching people that Jesus is Saviour and Lord. But we're also saying, as Lord, this is what he's commanded us. So the second thought that I'd want to unpack here is teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. I don't think we've realised the significance of the word I there. Jesus taught the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. He taught the two great commandments of the Old Testament. When the young man came to Jesus and, and Jesus was asked, what, what is the greatest commandment? He said, there are two great commandments. We know what they are. Love, one, love God with everything you've got. Love one another as I have loved you. These commandments have been given to fulfil the law and the prophets. So they were the two great commandments of the Old Testament. They're not the commandment of the New Testament. Jesus, when he died and rose again from the dead, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. So those commandments have all been fulfilled. We read in the book of Hebrews that uh, the Old Testament, the law, is obsolete. We're taught in a number of different places through the New Testament. Paul says the, New, the Old Testament law is irrelevant. It doesn't have a place anymore. What does have a place is grace. And so Jesus actually gave us his commandment. So in John chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus rewrote the second of the two great commandments in the Old Testament. The second of the two great commandments was love one another as you love yourself or love your neighbour as you love yourself. He's now saying love one another as I have loved you. What, one of the things that I think that we've missed in making disciples is that we've missed the importance of people knowing the love of God by experience and encounter. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19 says, To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. The Greek word there, to know, means to know by experience and encounter. So Paul's saying, to know by experience and encounter the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. So now there's two seats of knowledge that we have. Knowledge is what we know in our head. Experience and encounter is what we know in our heart. And so, so, G, so Paul is saying, what you know in your heart about the love of God will always surpass what you know in your head. And when you do that, you will be filled up to the fullness of God. And so when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, he's not talking about a head knowledge of how much God loves us. He's talking about a heart knowledge of how much God loves us. Now, the dilemma that we face, and I explored some of this last night with the leaders from here at uh, Mount Clear, is that the heart knows things the head will never understand. It's a, a quote from a guy called Pascal. What he's saying is that sometimes we behave in ways that we don't like to behave 
because we're behaving from the heart, not from the head. The heart knows pain and rejection and disappointment. The heart knows having to protect itself as a young child or as an adolescent. The heart has learned how to be self-centred and self-reliant to survive in life. So the heart knows that, but the head doesn't understand it. And so, so when we get squeezed by life, as followers of Jesus, we don't always act like Jesus would act because we're actually acting from knowledge in our heart that our head doesn't understand. Uh, illustrate it with forgiveness. We know in our head that we should forgive, but forgiving somebody in our heart is an entirely different thing. And so, so we, the reason why we find it difficult to forgive in our heart is because we are committed to judgment and punishment more than we are to forgiveness. Why? Because when we judge and punish others, we feel like we're in control and we're right and we're protecting ourselves. And so, so what, what happens uh, with, with love... So Jesus rewrote the second of the two commandments. Love one another as you love yourself is the Old Testament commandment. One of the reasons why we don't love one another well is because we're trying to love people as we love ourselves. And we just don't love ourselves very well. Because we love ourselves through the pain that we experienced when we were growing up. When we were growing up, we received love on the basis of performance. When you did what was right, you felt loved. When you did what was wrong, you felt punished. You felt love withdrawn. And so we assume that God is the same. And that's an Old Testament view of God. This is why religion is so appealing to everybody, because it's actually easier to follow the rules than it is to live in grace. It's easier to believe that God loves me on the basis of my behaviour rather than believing that God loves me because I breathe. God loves me because he is love. It's got actually nothing to do with me. God is love. And so he loves every human being exactly the same. He's not impressed with their behaviour the same, but he loves us all the same because love for him is disconnected from performance. But it's not for us. And so, so we tend to love people and we tend to experience love from other people on the basis of our performance and we love them similarly. Whereas Jesus has lifted the bar extraordinarily high and he said, no, now the new commandment is love one another as I've loved you. So what we need to do is to actually experience the love of God in our hearts where we experience that he loves me even though I'm failing, even though I'm making mistakes, even though I have places where I feel ashamed and guilty, he still loves me. He's not ashamed of me and he's not condemning me because Jesus was punished for all of my sin. And so the journey for us when we're becoming a disciple is to actually embrace this truth that I love on the basis of performance, but I need to go on a journey to learn how to love like Jesus loves from acceptance and grace. And so that's a journey of disciple-making that I need to go on, but it's also a journey of disciple-making that others that I'm discipling need to go on as well. And so it seems to me that Jesus has made this the core of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus and the core of how we're actually meant to bear witness to the kingdom of God. I'm meant to bear witness to the kingdom of God by being humble enough to acknowledge that I'm broken and that in my brokenness, I'm actually not representing the kingdom well and God has put other people around me because I can't see the nose on my face. I can't see some things in my brokenness. And God's actually put people around me to lovingly and caringly point those things out and ask me to consider what would need to change for me to be the person that God's made me to be. And so when it comes to making disciples, we're meant to teach people to observe or obey the New Testament commandment, all that I have commanded you. 
We find in John 15, Jesus says the same thing in verse 12. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15 verse 17. um, My commandment is that you love one another. And so he's owned a commandment. There is actually, when he says, teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you, he's actually referring to his commandment. All of the Old Testament stuff, as far as Paul is concerned, as the law, the commandments of the law are obsolete in the face of this one new commandment. And so, uh, now, when we hear the word teach, we tend to think of this, what I'm doing now. This is a very poor form of teaching. Um, the, the, The better form of teaching in this situation, the Aboriginal culture actually understands this, the Aboriginal culture teaches on the basis of the questions that are asked. So children are meant to ask the elders questions and they then give the answer to the child. But if the child's not asking the question, they don't give them the answer. Whereas we think what we've got to do in teaching is we've got to teach the children answers to questions they're not even asking. And we wonder why they're not interested. Um, and Jesus is the same. He tells parables because he wants us to ask questions. Because he, he wants to answer the questions for us. And so, so this, is, this is a poor form of teaching at, at one level because you may not be asking the questions that I'm answering today. You might be sitting there thinking, flip, how can I get out of here quickly? How can I go and have some nice lunch? You know, how can I go and do something that's more enjoyable than listening to this guy rabbit on? And um, I was in a meeting like that recently and I got out. And, uh, <laughs> 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 this, this is helpful if you're actually asking these questions or when I... When I actually start to talk about it, you go, that's a really good question. I wonder what the answer is to that. Um, and and that's, the, that's where this form of teaching is, is really valuable because people like me actually are answering the questions you're asking or you're intuitively wondering about, but you've never put words around them. Um, but the best form of teaching is imitation. The best form of teaching is hanging out with somebody and watching how they do life. Um, watch me do it. You then do it and then you're going to do it you're going to do it in my presence and then you're going to do it without me being around that's essentially how Jesus taught and so um, so love one another as I have loved you the best way that I can make disciples of that commandment is to be going on my own journey of knowing how much God loves me so that I'm then loving people in the way that Jesus loves me because they then go wow that felt really good I think I might start to try and love people that way as well I struggle to love people that way. I wonder what stops me from doing that. And they start to invite the Holy Spirit in and they start to read the word and hear revelation coming to them. And so, so in auditoriums like this all over our nation tomorrow, uh, we'll be teaching a whole bunch of things. Um, but one of the questions that I would want us all to consider is, are we building our spirituality around what happens in here on a Sunday? Or is this just a means to an end? Is it just a helpful place? for us to discover some things about who we really are in Christ, what God has done for us, and that people like myself and Andrew and others in the room who get to preach are thinking through this lens, that I'm actually, all that I'm teaching is actually meant to be helping people to discover and experience the love of God for them so they can love other people that way. 
So teach them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. So I've talked about command. I've talked about the fact that it's I commanded you. It's the New Testament commandment. We've talked about teaching, what teaching looks like. The word observe or obey, depending on whether it's the New American Standard or New International Version that you're reading or New King James. I love all the others. Um, I see a lot of people are reading the Passion Bible now. I celebrate that. But please don't build your theology out of those Bibles. Um, They're called paraphrase Bibles. They're what somebody else has decided the words mean, which are great and, you know, can be very helpful. But the New American, the New King James, the New International Version have all been translated by a group of people who have brought their collective wisdom to bear on what the words actually mean. Both of them, that's where we need to be forming our theology. Or even though then there are some challenges in the way that they've interpreted words, but that's my role in hermeneutics and exegesis in what I do. So I don't know why I said all that. That was pretty boring. Uh, you weren't interested in that. Um, that was a good reason not to be here. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so the, the word there, observe or obey, uh, the original language means to guard from loss by keeping your eye upon. That's what that word actually means. So when you say, what does it mean to observe or what does it mean to obey? Well, the original language, what was buried behind that word for them, what they were communicating was that you were to guard from loss by keeping your eye upon. And so what Jesus is saying is teach them to guard from loss by keeping their eye upon how much they're loved by me so they can love other people well. Now, one of the reasons why we don't love people well So restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be so that we can bear witness to the kingdom, the power of love. One of the reasons why we don't love well is we take our eye off how much God loves us and we put our eye on other things. We put our eye on our rejection, on our disappointment, on our anger. We put our eye on I need to be right. We put our eye in other places. We, we, We drop our eye from how much God loves us and we drop it down onto the things that are happening to us in our circumstances. And then we stop loving people the way that Jesus loves us. Guard from loss by keeping your eye upon. And so, uh, again, last night, talking to the leaders, I was talking about the power and the place of refuge. Where do we take refuge when we're under pressure? And this is a similar idea. Where, Where is my eye when I'm being rejected? Where is my eye when I feel like I'm being criticized? Where am I putting my eye when I feel like people don't understand me? What am I looking at? Am I looking at God's love for me and loving them through that? Or am I looking at they're criticising me, they're disagreeing with me, and so now I need to judge them and punish them and prove to them that I'm right and they're wrong? And so so Jesus is is saying the centre of our spirituality here needs to be continually viewing life through how much God loves me. But if we haven't experienced that in our hearts, if we haven't had encounters with the love of God in our heart, then we'll only know God's love in our head. And when we get squeezed by life, we always default to what's in our heart, not what's in our head. When you get squeezed with rejection, you'll default to unforgiveness more than you will to forgiveness unless you've gone on a journey of actually knowing the forgiveness of God so you can give the forgiveness of God away. Um, And so... Uh, so then the question becomes, well, how do I posture myself to experience the love of God? How do I posture myself to have encounters with the love of God? Uh, that's a really big conversation that I don't have time for today, but it's worthwhile you thinking about. And so 
I posture myself any time that I'm in worship, my posture is to experience the love of God. Always in worship. One of my primary postures is to experience the love of God. It is not unusual for me in worship at Stairway to have tears running down my cheeks as I'm aware of how much God loves me and all that he's done for me and how wonderful he is. I posture myself to experience the love of God by walking in the bush. And if I was near a beach, I'd walk on a beach preferably. Um, But it's one of the prices that I've paid for moving to Sydney to Melbourne. Um, Because I, I experience the love of God. I experience the awe of God when I look up into the heavens at night and see all the stars and go, Flip, you created all of that. When I think about my problems in relationship to the creation of the universe, I go, well, if you can create a universe, you can fix up whatever's going on in my life. <laughs> the main issue is that he's just too slow. But you know, <laughs> we want it done now, but, <laughs> but faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Beautiful word, patience. And, uh, and so, so it's, it's, I, I experience the love of God in relationships with other people when they honour and respect me, not because I want to be honoured and respected, but I go, they're actually loving me with the love that they've received from God. And so I recognise that that love that I'm receiving from them is something that God has given to them to give to me. It's a a gift. Um, When I'm celebrated, I experience the love of God. So like this morning, you know, when Mel was talking about me, is as awkward as that can be hearing those things because as Australians and particularly men we, we, don't, we don't know how to do this and open our heart up we tend to be more like this and go alright um, but, but that's a moment of experiencing the love of God because what Mel is communicating to me is the love that God's put in her heart for me and so I need to open my heart up to that and just receive it as a gift from God not that I go aren't I great and don't I feel good I mean that's if we're going there then we don't understand what's actually going on there's a piece of brokenness in us we're insecure and we're trying to medicate on what other people think about us but um, so anyway I feel like I'm rambling a bit right now Um, uh, so uh, back on on track Um, it's intriguing to me uh, that the Nicene Creed and the Apostles Creed the two great creeds of faith when people were illiterate and couldn't read or write. And so they created the creed so that they could be memorised. So they created good theology for the New Testament, the early church. In both of those creeds, neither of them referenced the New Testament commandment. They both referenced the two great commandments of the Old Testament. Already they've taken their eye off it. Now, you only need to start a journey two degrees off course before you end up in this sort of space. Um, I'm intrigued that we fast forward uh, 1,300 years and we come to the Westminster Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. So the Westminster Confession is the great statement of faith of the Protestant Church. The Heidelberg Catechism is the great statement of faith of the Catholic Church. Neither of them referenced the New Testament commandment. They both referenced the two Old Testament commandments. I find it intriguing to lots of preachers that I listen to and books that I read, they're always talking about the two great commandments of the Old Testament, that if you get those right, life will go well. And I'm going, that's obsolete. That stuff isn't, that, that, that law doesn't bear any fruit anymore. 
Why, why do we keep talking about it? This is my thought, is that the devil very subtly has got us to take our eye off what's most important. Loving God as I've been loved by you. Love God with all of your heart, mind and soul and love one another as you love yourself. No, they're, they're the, the two great commandments of the Old Testament. <laughs> that's okay. It is, I, and, I, and that's... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I appreciate the fact that you're asking the question because most people don't actually have not stopped and thought about this. And I think it's one of the reasons why we're not bearing witness to the kingdom of God because we're not actually restoring love back to the way that God originally intended it to be. We still love one another through behaviour and through performance, which is what the Old Testament was all about. The New Testament is all about grace. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a great question, grace. Thank you for asking. Um, do we want to stop and explore this a little bit more deeply or are we all, are we all okay? Sure, all right. So uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 20, isn't it? Um, <laughs> there it is right there <laughs> um, where in Matthew or Luke uh, sorry it's in Luke, is it? Luke, is it Luke? Um, and, it's, and it's a really, it's a really great point. As humorous as it was, uh, as a preacher, I've got to pay attention to this as well. Is that everyone I'm talking to learns differently? Um, and so, as a preacher, I've got to figure out uh, how do I communicate in a way that meets everybody's uh, preferred teaching uh, or discovery um, sort of spaces. Um, Come on, Andrew. You're, uh, you should be able to help me here. <laughs> if I use, my, I have my phone. Uh, my phone. I've, I didn't bring my charger. My phone's run out of power. The Bible app. Two great commandments. Matthew 22. Very good. Thank you. Yep, so, yeah, so we'll start in verse... So we're going to Matthew chapter 22 and we're starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And so I want you to notice that it's in the law. And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. 
So they're the two great commandments of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets depend on those two commandments. If we then jump across to Hebrews and uh, uh, chapter uh, 7, uh, we, in verse 12 it says, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. So the priesthood changed from the Old Testament, the priesthood being Aaron, uh, the Levites, and Jesus is now our high priest. So whoever wrote Hebrews is saying when the priesthood is changed, so his whole conversation is here in here is that the priesthood has changed to Jesus and our high priest. So of necessity there takes place a change of the law also. Chapter 7 verse 12. verse 18 for on the one hand there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness so whoever wrote the book of Hebrews is saying the law of the Old Testament has been set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And so whoever wrote Hebrews is saying the law was weak and useless. If we then jump across to chapter 8 and verse 13, we find them saying, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And so Jesus, when he said, a new commandment I give to you, is making a new covenant with us. And so, so the old, so the two great commandments of the Old Testament, on this all the law and the prophets rest. There are other verses that I could point to in Romans and, and a number of other places as well that say the same thing. Um, that that old law... Because of a change in the priesthood, there needed to be a change in the law. And so the the old was weak and useless because it didn't help us understand who God really was in terms of love. And so a better commandment has been given. And then he has made the first obsolete by whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And so teach them to observe or obey, Matthew chapter 28, teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. He's pointing to the fact that moving forward, we need to teach out of the new covenant, out of the New Testament commandment, not the old. And that word observe or obey, keep your eye on. Guard from loss by keeping your eye on. Now the thing is, is that religion and the Old Testament are more appealing to most of us because we're more comfortable with love being based on performance because that's how we've been raised. It's, it's why religion works. Some of the largest churches in our nation are actually built on law rather than on grace because people want to know how to belong, they want to know how to be significant and they want to know how to be secure. Just tell me what to do and I will feel safe. So you think about the Grand Canyon... If you were to put a two-lane bridge across the Grand Canyon without any barriers on the side of it, you would find most people, one, wouldn't walk across it, and two, if they did, they'd walk right in the middle. Why? Because they're afraid of falling off. You put some barriers along it, 
and they'll walk out to the barriers, they'll lean across the barriers and they'll feel safe. So what rules and regulations do is that they create the barriers. I know where I stand. I know what's expected. But in the New Testament, it's all about they that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, not they who follow the rules. Let's go to Romans. Uh, I'll try and illustrate this in here as well. Uh, so, um, so Romans chapter 14, verse 16. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who, serves, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. What's he saying? I'm glad you asked. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not rules and regulations. The Old Testament, so what food is kosher? The Jews still, they want to say, food, what you eat and drink has to be kosher. It has to follow a certain set of rules. So this whole part, he's saying, don't let somebody tell you what's good for you is evil. Don't let people judge you by rules and regulations. The kingdom of God is no longer about rules and regulations. It never has been really, but God put it in place to help us realise that we needed a saviour because we couldn't attain holiness on our own, in our own effort. That's another conversation altogether. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's the common denominator of righteousness, peace and joy? They are all things that you have received. They're not things that you have earned. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He who knew no sin became sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am righteous because of what Jesus did for me and I have received righteousness. I haven't earned it. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I have received it. He said, I put my joy in you that you might experience the fullness of life. And so what, Jesus, what Paul is saying here is that the kingdom of God is not about following the rules, but it's about learning to live in what we've received. And we've received grace. We've been saved by grace, not by works that any man should boast. And so the kingdom of God is actually about learning to live in what we have received, not following a whole bunch of rules and regulations. But most of us are really uncomfortable with that idea because we want to feel like we've earned what we've received. We feel more comfortable with that because that's how we've been raised. I'm a social worker by training. I have a first-class honours degree. I topped my year at university. I've got a great brain inside of my head. It's a friend and an enemy all at the same time. It's an enemy because I can rely on it. It's a friend because I can actually I can find my way through things and give God honour for the fact that it actually works like that. And so, so I earned my first-class honours degree. Nobody else did it. I did it. Those of us in the room, if we have some sort of qualification, we know we earned it. I have a right, well, I used to have a right to practice as a social worker, I probably don't anymore, but um, because of what I did, I earned it. On the other hand, my mother died in an aeroplane accident 32 years ago, just last month, in Burma. The plane flew on the side of a hill, about 60 people on it, and everybody was killed. And, uh, and so my mum and dad had divorced, my mum had remarried, and so my stepfather and mum both died at the same time. So there were seven children, four from mum, three from Liz. We inherited, we all inherited money. So back in the day, we inherited $40,000. 
I didn't do anything to earn that $40,000. I got it because of the bloodline that I was in. And so I've received righteousness, peace and joy because I'm in Jesus' bloodline. I haven't earned it. So the kingdom of God is based on what I have received, not through any effort of my own, but because of the bloodline that I'm in. And this is why Paul talks about honouring the inheritance that we've received. So with my inheritance, the $40,000, Lynn and I bought a house in Sydney, which is a really great idea because it grew in value. And now 30 years on, we've bought a house in Melbourne. We've helped our children buy houses by using the equity in our house. So instead of paying school fees, we're just paying interest on the loans. But they've all got houses. So now as a family... We have about $1.3 to $1.5 million worth of money from that $40,000 seed. My sister, on the other hand, took her $40,000 and gave it to a financial advisor and 12 months later had nothing. Whilst that's disappointing, I now want to challenge you in your disappointment. What are you doing with the inheritance from God that you've received? And are you losing it or are you multiplying it? And you see, what happens for many Christians is that we don't actually use the inheritance because we're looking at what we've got to earn rather than looking at what we've received. We're still trying to live by the rules and the regulations and think that will please God. But actually, we need to learn how to be led by the Spirit and how to live in what we've received and multiply that inside of us. So back here in Romans, for me, the most important verse is one that we hardly ever read in verse 18. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. (coughs) Serves Christ in what way? Serves Christ by living in what we've received, not trying to earn everything. So when we serve Christ by living in grace and living in New Testament, in what we've received, that's what is acceptable to God and that's what gets approved by men. One of the reasons why we don't bear witness to the kingdom is because the church is forever telling our culture the rules that they're breaking. What the? Put in whatever word you want. (laughs) Is that all about? Soon. So our first point is uh, it didn't come to destroy but to fulfil. Making something obsolete doesn't destroy it. It's just not useful anymore. So he hasn't actually destroyed it. He has come to fulfil it. And so in what I'm suggesting, I think that that, that God uh, has always wanted to know us and to be known by us as a God of love. Um, That's always been his intent. Uh, And so, but what he had to do was to help us to realise when Adam and Eve exchanged fathers and, and went after Satan and his whole dominion was that we couldn't actually live in the family of God on the basis of our own merit because the kingdom of darkness is all about our own merit. It's all about self-effort. It's all about judgment. It's all about managing fear. 
And so he had to show us that we can't actually live in the kingdom on our own merit. We, we need a saviour. And so, so Jesus, I'd, he came to fulfil the law. He came to elevate us back up to what was always there. And so he hasn't destroyed by saying it's obsolete and that it's, um, <coughs> it's weak and useless. It's pointing to the thought that it's weak and useless and obsolete in helping us to live inside of the family of God. It was never, ever going to help us to live inside of the family of God. No. But what was sin is still sin. Yes. But we are saved through grace, not through obedience. Correct. Stop sin. Yeah, and so so the thought then is so the the, the Bible says that uh, two Corinthians chapter five that he doesn't count any of our transgressions against us. In Colossians it says all of our sins have been forgiven. Uh, in Philippians it says all of our trespasses have been forgiven. And so so. So what I want to suggest to you this morning is that why would God speak to you about something that he's forgiven? Why would he want to speak to you about your sin? So if we go to the God, so let's go to the God. This is a really good conversation. Um, it's got nothing to do with what I was going to do, but, um, <laughs> but you're asking questions and I'm answering them, which is apparently the biblical way, the best way to do things. So John chapter 16, verse 8. And when he comes, so Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the rule of this world has been judged. My theological understanding of this scripture goes like this. If all of my sins have been forgiven and God doesn't count any of my transgressions against me, it means that he's not actually looking at my sin because Jesus paid the price for it. Why would he be speaking to me about something he's dealt with? So with that as a foundational thought, concerning sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me, I think the only sin that Jesus convicts us of is our unbelief in the finished work of the cross. It's unbelief. Once I'm a believer, he now convicts me of my righteousness. The next verse, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. He's talking about post the cross, where somebody can actually be forgiven for all of their sin. So once you've put your faith in the finished work of the cross, what the Lord's speaking to you is about your righteousness. He's not speaking to you about your sin. But the way it, this is how it works. So let's say that you lie all the time. So, so when, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're lying because something's broken in your heart. You're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to do something. And so the Holy Spirit and God and Jesus look at you and say, you're living below the righteousness that I've achieved for you. You don't need to lie. You can live in the truth because you don't need to be ashamed or guilty or condemned. But if I'm going to help you to live in the righteousness, I'm convicting you that you can live up here, not down here. If you're going to do that, I actually need to show you that you're lying and you need through self-awareness and personal responsibility to accept that that's your issue and then bring it before me, the throne of grace in time of need and ask me to help you set you free. And so what will happen is that you'll find the Holy Spirit speaking to you about your sin, which he's forgiven, but your sin has created a prison for you. And Jesus came to set the captives free. 
And so you're a captive to lying to protect yourself. But what he's doing in shining your, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the lying, he's actually calling you up into righteousness. He's not leaving you here and condemning you and punishing you. He's not calling you out like in the Old Testament to punish you for your sin. He's saying, you can live in a better place than that, but I need you to work with me. I need you to invite me into that space so I can heal you and I can strengthen you. But you'll only invite me in there if you realise that I'm not condemning you, that I'm not judging you because I've forgiven you all of your sin. So you don't need to hide from it. Let me call you up here and let me take you on a journey. They that are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. Let me lead you into the freedom that I want for you. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I would want to add to it that the the heart knows things that the mind doesn't understand. And so I'd want to add to it that there is brokenness in our heart. That that whilst in our heart Jesus dwells in our heart, and that is the truth. Those memories that you're talking about that are in our mind, they're also in our heart. Those the, we still we've got memories in our heart and our mind. And so it is renewing the mind, but it's also being strengthened in the inner man yes. to be set free from those. So I think it's both. Yeah. But, the, but what you're describing, I think, is accurate. But I would want to point to the fact that it's in both places that the Spirit's at work, not just in the mind. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So thank you for the question. Um, and so, so the Holy Spirit... So what's, happened, so what's happening here... Um, so let me just go through here slowly... Uh, if I'm accurate in suggesting that the majority of preachers and communicators point back to the two great commandments of the Old Testament and they're pointing back to love one another as you love yourself, what they're pointing back to is a performance-based way of relating to God. So that's their framework. So when it comes to these scriptures and their experience of the way that God works. When you have that as your sort of framework, when the Holy Spirit shines light on the lying, what they're saying is that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin because their relationship with God is all about performance. A lot of preaching is about teaching you to behave right. But Jesus taught us to believe right. And Paul taught us to believe right as well. So if you look at Paul's letters, the first half of them are about this is what we believe and because we believe these things, this is how we behave. The 12-step programs, whether you like them or not, actually understand this principle, that when you believe right, you'll behave right. Behaviour is always the echo of belief. So when you get angry, you're not getting angry in a vacuum. You're getting angry because you're believing something. You're believing you need to be right. 
You're believing you need to defend yourself. Yeah. You're, believing, you're believing something that says, I have to use anger now to stay safe. So the behaviour of anger is connected to belief. Yeah. All behaviour is connected to belief. Yeah. And so if you can change the belief, you'll change the behaviour. And so what, Jesus, what, what I think Jesus is saying here is the Holy Spirit wants to convict you of what you are believing that you need to lie so that your behaviour of lying changes when you understand that you don't need to lie to defend yourself because God, you can trust God in that space. And so he's calling us up into the righteousness that we've already received. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not just living from there when I'm lying. I'm living from another place. And so that's a prison. And Jesus wants to set me free from that prison. But he, I, I can only ever be set free if I invite him in. This is how you became a Christian. You became a Christian this way. You, you became self-aware that you were separated from God. You took personal responsibility for your separation from God and you prayed. And boom, you were saved into the family of God. If that's how you get into the family, then I want to suggest to you that's how all transformation takes place. All transformation takes place with self-awareness and personal responsibility. I'm lying. I don't want to lie. I take responsibility for the fact that I'm lying. Nobody's making me do it. And so I come before the throne of grace in time of need and I say, God, I don't want to be a liar anymore. I want to live in the righteousness that you've given to me that I can live as a person who lives with truth and I don't need to defend myself by lying anymore. Whatever it is that I've chosen to believe as I've grown up, can you excuse me, help unravel all of that so I now actually believe who I am in Christ? Yeah. The third thing that the scripture says here about what the Holy Spirit will do, he'll convict of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Here's where the rule rub comes in. The ruler of this world wants you to live in rules and regulations. Yes. He wants you to live in judgment because that's the mode of operation of his kingdom. The mode of operation of God's kingdom is love. The mode of this, of this kingdom is judgment. We, we'll get to that later on this afternoon. And so, so what he's saying is the ruler of this world has been judged. Don't listen to somebody that's been proven to be wrong. Don't listen to the lies. Don't listen to all that self-talk that's going on inside of your head that tells you that if you stop lying, you're going to get exposed. You're going to get punished. People are going to abandon you. You'll be rejected. So whatever you do, keep lying. The, the ruler of this world does not want you out of those, those, those traps, those prisons of sin that he's put you in. And so because he wants to keep you there, he will keep speaking to you. And so what, the Holy, what Jesus is saying is, the rule of this world has been judged. Stop listening to the lies. You've, part of the deal of living in your righteousness is you've got to stop living according to the lies and live according to the truth of the word. So understand you're working with a defeated enemy, although that enemy will prowl about like a roaring lion, speaking into your world, trying to get you to live at a lower level. So... So what, what I'm exploring here is the interconnectedness of a number of these ideas that we're, we're actually we're more comfortable with religion than we are with grace. Yeah. Because religion says, if you do this, you'll belong, you'll be significant, and you'll be secure. Yeah. So let me take the next 10 minutes to land this puppy, and then we'll have some lunch. We all have three driving emotions in us to belong, to be significant, and to be secure. From the time that you were born, you've been trying to figure out how did you belong in your family of origin or with the significant others that adopted you or cared for you? How do I belong with them? How am I significant to them? And how am I secure with them? 
You, from the time you've been born, you've been trying to figure that out. You take that same set of questions and you try and figure it out when you went to school. How do I belong here? How am I significant here? How am I secure? You then took it when you went to paint or to write or to be a great athlete or to be a sporting person, wherever it is that you decided to put your energy, how do I belong with this group of people? How am I significant with them and how am I secure with them? We then find it when we go to work. We're trying to figure out how do I belong in this workplace? How am I significant here? How am I secure? It's, it's in us all the time. And so, so how, do we, how do we get that sorted out? Well, we get it sorted out by asking one question. We ask this question all the time. What is right and required for acceptance? What have I got to do here to be accepted? What have I got to do here to belong? What have I got to do here to be significant? And what have I got to do here to be secure? Let me illustrate it. Lynn and I have the privilege of travelling a lot. We've been to Europe on multiple occasions and love going there because of the history. We've been to the Sistine Chapel. The Catholic tradition says that when you touch the presence of God, you're meant to be silent and reverent and bow in awe. And so in the Sistine Chapel, they employ four people to constantly be going shh to all the crowds that are in there making noise. The irony is that they make more noise than the crowds do, but <laughs> they, they seem to miss out on that idea. And so to belong in the Sistine Chapel, you're meant to be quiet and reverent. To be significant and secure, you're meant to be quiet and reverent. I'm a Pentecostal. When I touch the presence of God, I get exuberant. I throw my hands in the air and I start speaking in tongues. So I walk into the Sistine Chapel, the presence of God in the Sistine Chapel, whether you believe in the theology of the Catholic Church is irrelevant, God has been worshipped in there for centuries. And it is palpable, the presence of God. It's palpable in many of the great cathedrals of, uh, of Europe as well um, because the God has genuinely been worshipped there for centuries. Um, it's just that they're not connecting with the spiritual dynamic in the, in the building. But, um, and so... So if I was to throw my hands in the air and speak in tongues, I didn't because Lynn was with me, but if I was on my own, I probably would have. I would have been thrown out. I wouldn't have belonged there. I certainly wouldn't have been secure there and I wouldn't have been significant. So what's right and required for acceptance? Now, the, the, the dilemma with asking that question is that we always come up with a performance answer. It's what I do. <laughs> Shush in a Pentecostal way. <laughs> so we ask this question, what's right and required for acceptance? And we come up with a performance answer. We always come up with performance answers. So I've got to do something to belong, I've got to do something to be significant, and I've got to do something to be secure. Now what we've done is we've created councils of fear. Because now I'm afraid of not being that person. And we've all got these councils of fear. This is where fear of rejection and fear of being misunderstood and fear of failure come from. Because I'm afraid of not being the person that I think I need to be to belong, to be significant and to be secure. And so I get tormented by these councils of fear. I'd love to be a part of the, the broader conversation in our culture about mental illness at the minute because I, I just think these, these are such simple ideas if people could only grab them and understand them. Yeah. But, so we've now got the... If, because it's about what have I got to do to be accepted, you know, the high, these athletes that perform really well, their whole identity is based on performing well and now they're afraid of not performing well and that's where the mental illness comes because they start to they have doubt and fear that's speaking to them. So... 
So we end up with a performance answer. We end up with counsels of fear. What then happens is we become self-centered, self-reliant and self-condemning. Because when you, when you have this performance structure and you're trying to avoid fear, you'll become self-reliant. I'm going to run life in a way that makes me safe and make sure everybody else isn't. I'm going to be self-centered. I'm going to do what works for me, even if you have to be the one that comes off second best. And I'm going to be self-condemning because I'm not going to be the person that I want to be. I know that I'm doing stuff that's hurting other people and I'm not enjoying it, but being safe is more important than about looking after you. And so, so we bring all of that with us into our relationship with Jesus. And so the reason why religion is so attractive to people, the reason why rules and regulations is so attractive, is because it tells us how to belong and how to be significant and how to be secure. Tell me what to do, tell me what to believe, tell me how to behave, tell me how to respond, and I will feel like I belong and I'm significant and I'm secure here. But, But Paul and Jesus, the New Testament isn't about that they're not telling us how to belong and how to be significant how to be secure they're saying you do belong you are significant and you are secure you don't have to do anything it's what you have received so if we go to colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 it says to those who are chosen holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion and kindness and gentleness forgiving each other as you have been forgiven and above all else put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So here's my final thought before we go to lunch. If you know you're chosen, you'll know you belong. If you know that you're holy, you'll know you're significant. And if you know you're the beloved of God, you will be secure. God always wanted to meet those three driving needs inside of you. It's like the three-pronged plug of an electrical cord. You just got to stick it in the right place. And so when you know you're chosen, when you have revelation, when you know in your heart that God chose you, you didn't choose him. Yeah. It had nothing to do with what you did. It had everything to do with who, that he wanted you. Yes. You will know you belong. You belong because he chose you. Yeah. You have received his choosing. Mm-hmm. You haven't done it. You didn't do anything to be chosen. He just decided to choose you. When you know that you're holy, all of your sins have been forgiven. He's not condemning you for your sin. He's not judging you for your sin. He actually wants to set you free from the power of your sin. That whole John 16 thing that I just talked about. You'll know you're significant. I have significance because God has made me significant. He made me into his child. And when you know that you're the beloved of God, when you know you're loved by God, you'll be secure. Because you're not having to prove anything anymore. I'm comfortable in the fact that God loves me, the, the creator of the universe. Yeah. He loves me with a love that is beyond description. And so, so the, the, the transition here is helping people to move from a desire to belong and be significant and secure on the basis of performance following rules and regulations, which religion plays into, which the Old Testament plays into, which we are more comfortable with. And it's why preachers inadvertently, they'll talk about grace but they'll slip back into this performance sort of Old Testament idea because that's what we're comfortable with. That's what we know. This is why uh, Paul said to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. We've got to know in our heart something different. We've got to know a love that is based on acceptance and I'm valued because I breathe because I'm his creation. And because I'm valued because I breathe, I value everybody else because they breathe. 
Because I'm valued because I'm God crea- God's creation, I value everybody else because they're God's creation. Yeah. And so when I've flown from LA to Auckland and I've been on the plane for 12 hours and I'm tired and I'm walking through Auckland Airport and they, I'm going to get another international flight and they want to run a bomb test over me, it's like, where the bloody hell have I got a bomb from, you know? <laughs> <laughs> How do I treat the guy that wants to do the bomb test? <laughs> How am I going to treat the person in India who works for Lumo Energy? Who's been given a script to answer questions from? <laughs> and I'm asking a question that their script doesn't answer. And I'm getting nowhere and I've already waited 40 minutes to talk to them. <laughs> They're a human being. They're going to go home at night and talk to someone. Yeah. How was your day? Yeah. I had 250 Australians that were a real pain in the backside. But there was one who actually treated me really well. Yeah. <laughs> 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 or we can be changed. <laughs> so... So all of this comes back to how am I bearing witness to the kingdom? Yeah. Now, you might say, well, it's not going to make any difference to the person at Lumo Energy or the guy who's testing me for a bomb. No, it's not necessarily, although it will add value to them. And Jesus said, if you bring a cup of water to somebody who's thirsty, you've brought it to me. Yeah. So there's something in here as well that what I'm doing to his creation, I'm actually doing to him. Yes. But just as importantly, if I can't do it in the little things, I won't do it in the big things. Yeah. And so, you know, if I'm walking down a jungle path and there's a poisonous spider on the leaf litter, it will kill me as much as the elephant running towards me. I know how to get out of the way of big sin, but sometimes it's the little sin that actually undermines my progress in God yeah, yeah, yeah. because I don't see it under the leaf litter. And so, so I've just learned that I have to pay attention to the little things because if I can pay attention to the little things, I'll actually get it right in the big things. Yeah. And I can't give myself permission to go, oh, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. Yeah. It does matter to God. Yeah. And so therefore it should matter to me. Yeah. Let me pray and then we're going to have lunch. Father, we've covered a whole bunch of ground here. Holy Spirit, I, I, just, I thank you for what you're showing us. And my prayer, Lord, right now is that some of these ideas would be sealed in our hearts in ways that they've not been sealed before. Mm. Holy Spirit, we want to honour the feast that you've given to us in the last hour or so. Mm. We want to honour that this is your kingdom and we're not satisfied with knowing it in our head. We actually want to become these people. And so I'm asking Holy Spirit on our own journeys, on each individual person's journey, I pray that there would be a level of acceleration into the truth that we've been wrestling with today. That, Lord, we would bear witness to the kingdom of God in ways that have eluded us to this point. So I'm asking Holy Spirit, let this be a moment of transformation. Let the meditations of our heart on what we've heard today be moments of transformation. In Jesus' name. Amen.